This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a very interesting show talking with a friend and economist, Peter Bookvar. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting views on what's going around, uh, going on in the world. Uh, but first, we're going to kick it off with some comments from Professor Siegel. Professor, last week we couldn't hold the green on Friday, but today we've got another green day. How are you reacting to, to all that's going on in the markets? Yeah, this was one of the lightest weeks on data that we ever had. So people were mulling it over. And, you know, with the situation in Europe earlier this week and the China shutdowns, the really pessimism got really high. And I, I think got, the market got oversold. Um, and I think we're, we're, we're seeing a bounce, a uh, justifiable bounce uh, from that. I mean, next week is, 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 is a big week. I mean, Tuesday we have the CPI, Wednesday we have the PPI, uh, we have retail sales, we have uh, more inflation uh, uh, survey uh, data coming in. I mean, that's going to really shape a lot of, I think, the broader movements in the market. I mean, so far, again, I mean, uh, right now the estimates for both the CPI and PPI uh, overall are down one-tenth uh, for the month of August. Uh, on the core, up three-tenths of, of a percent. Um, now, year over year, it still looks extremely bad, obviously, because of the buildup of in- inflation. But this goes along with my thesis that most of the inflation, I think, is, is still behind us, and we're into a much more moderate rate of inflation. I mean, 0.3%, uh, excluding the food and energy, is only 35 to 4% uh, annual uh, rate. And that is with the lagged... Uh, uh, housing, which is still going to come in strong. Uh, I've actually seen some live surveys that have suggested that, uh, believe it or not, people expect housing prices to drop, not precipitously, but modestly over the next 12 months. You will not see that in the official statistics, but I think on the ground you will actually see a drop in in uh, those prices. So, um, and there's more and more people that I think are coming to the conclusion, you know, maybe we got the bulk of the inflation uh, behind us. We have to be warned, as I've been warning now for months, that official statistics will not uh, record as much of an improvement as we've actually uh, had uh, in the data. So uh, we need the lookout. So it'd be interesting to see how the financial markets look at it, frame the data, and um, we're going to enter the quiet period, so we're not going to get comments from Fed officials uh, prior to their meeting the following week. But uh, you know, it'd be you know clearly interested to see what the market uh, is is going to say about all the data coming through next week. Let me also mention, as a, as a, a final initial comment, that uh, we're still having the the paradox of workers being added and very slow growth in, in product, uh, productivity, I mean, a drop in productivity, very slow growth in, in GDP. The forecasters I look at are forecasting third quarter GDP between one half and one percent, yet we added, uh, as you know, over uh, the uh, July and uh, August period, over 800,000 workers. Again, it looks like another drop of productivity, not quite as precipitous as the first Two quarters, which, as we've mentioned, are the greatest since we've been getting data. But again, we're not out of this terrible productivity funk for which, uh, you know, we have no ready answer for. Professor, one of the um, strategists on CNBC this week, uh, Minard from Guggenheim, talked about 
you know, seeing a 20% fall in a few weeks from seasonal, September being a week time. You've done a lot of writing. The updated edition of Stocks for Long Run is coming out in a few weeks. You talk about seasonals and September being, a, you know, one of the weaker months. Um, but he also talked about valuations and where inflation was and what should the, the normal valuation on the market be. I know you think a lot about where valuations are and, and where they are relative to history and what they should be. Do you want to comment on the combined element of a week seasonal time as well as where valuations are what they ought to be yeah most certainly i did hear the minute comment and um uh let me let me just say in the and the valuations um uh that uh september which clearly used to be the worst month of the year uh, as you and i have both done in the historical data that has actually shifted to august as people anticipate a bad september so september has not been as bad in the last 20 years as it was in the previous 50 years. So seasonality uh, had, had moved up. So we may have passed that uh, lowest period. Um, he, uh, well, and I, I listened to him, and uh, the major, major problem I had with his very bearish outlook, at least in the near term, although he, he said, I, I'm going to be a big buyer, uh, you know, it's going to be undervalued, and then I want to get in. I mean, that's always a very dangerous position to take. But, uh, you know, he, he talks about going back to a 15 P.E., 14 P.E. He fails to to note that we are in a very different world. When we bat, went back to 11, 12, 13, 14 P.E.s, we had uh, interest rates that were 6, 7, 8 percent, well above inflation, real positive interest rates. Um, we don't have that situation today. You don't have the alternatives of the world's biggest market, which is a fixed income market, giving you any sort of uh, decent forward returns, even with the Fed hiking. So that's clearly going to change how low equities are going to go, even if we have a recession. Furthermore, I don't want to base P.E. on a recession level of earnings. Um, you know, you, you should you, you should cyclically correct it uh, to a recovery level of earnings, a middle, not a boom level, not a recession level. So I think he's way too pessimistic about what's going to happen in this short run. Secondly, I don't know really if we're going to have a recession. As we said, we've had two consecutive quarters, first two of negative. This quarter looks almost zero. I mean, I, what oh, what is actually going to be happening on third, fourth, and fifth, sixth quarters now uh, going from uh, forward? Uh, I'm not quite sure if we get any sort of a productivity return to normal or a bounce. Uh, you know, we may not have the recession that everyone seems to fear. Uh, and any other commentary on, on real rates? I know the tips yields have been moving higher in some ways. Yeah. Uh, are they getting yeah. back to your, your fair Absolutely. value levels? And, and that's to put pressure on stocks. I was actually, uh, let me just, uh, you know, take a look at it right now. Ten-year tips, 88, 89 basis points. Yes, yeah, getting back to that nearly high that it reached to one basis point. I'm a little bit surprised, actually. NASDAQ is doing as well with, with that pressure on those real rates, which would tend to, you know, uh, affect those loaded data. Clearly, that is also a factor uh, depressing the market. But I think one reason stocks are bouncing is not only from a very uh, a real negative sentiment indicator, but there might be more hope that we're not slipping into a recession. So I think that, uh, you know, some of the earnings fears might be dissipating, offsetting the higher real rates that we get. But uh, clearly, I think, uh, you know, the, the price data and how the market and the Fed interprets that price data looking forward looking rather than just backward looking is going to be really important uh, for the markets next week. All right, Professor. Well, thanks for giving us some comments to start the show. We'll talk to you again uh, next week. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm going to turn our conversation to Peter Bookvar, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group, a New Jersey wealth management firm. He's the editor of The Book Report, a macro market newsletter. I, I recently started subscribing to The Book Report. I was with Peter in Maine. Um, he's, he's one of the, the colleagues go to Cam Kotak every summer. I got to know Peter there. Uh, I, I signed up right on the spot with Peter this, this, uh, this summer. It's been a very enjoyable report, Peter. Thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. I appreciate it, and uh, I appreciate you giving it a read. Um, tell us, uh, you, you heard the professor's opening comments on how, and his read of the markets. Uh, how are you looking at what's happening? Just maybe for the top-down, high-level, how are you reacting to everything going on uh, this week and, and in general? So I, I think um, we have a, a, some interesting um, 
situations that are developing here. Uh, on one hand, we have, uh, I know you guys talked about the tip fields. Inflation expectations are falling rather notably. Uh, one year, inflation expectations are now below 2%. And there is every reason to believe that inflation will uh, moderate in the, the CPI stats in the, in the quarters to come. At the same time, the Fed is still very aggressive with their interest rate increases. Uh, just in the tape right now, Governor uh, Chris Waller said that uh, he's probably for a 75 basis point increase, and Buller, who also votes, said he's for the same thing. Uh, so they're still pressing it and in order to regain their, their credibility. At the same time, like I said, inflation uh, expectations are, are falling notably. Now, I'm still in the camp of that inflation, yes, it's falling, um, but it's still going to remain at an elevated level for a sustainable period. Uh, yeah, maybe in the short term we fall back below 2%, but then we're probably gonna bounce back. So I'm looking at a three to five year period of above trend inflation rather than uh, getting back to the pre-COVID level. So that then, um, I think the next thing the markets really need to focus on is yes, is inflation's falling, but what's the economic impact of the very sharp rise in interest rates and inflation's falling because growth is slowing as well. So it's inflation that's moderating inflation, a way of saying, you know, uh, high prices cure high prices uh, as demand is faltering and uh, that in turn limits the price increases. So I think the next hurdle for the market is going to be what's the economic impact of uh, this higher cost of capital? Uh, what companies are going to make it through and who are not in terms of their balance sheet? and financing. When you think about a lot of money that's piled into the leveraged loan space over the last couple of years, and a lot of companies that have floating rate debt that they did not hedge out, they're going to be susceptible. Uh, so we're, we're in a new environment in terms of, of what it means for economic activity uh, with higher rates, even though they're not high, they're higher. Uh, after being sort of medicated on for the last 15 years on, on very low rates, uh, how do we manage through a higher rate environment, both in terms of the economy, but also multiples? I know you guys uh, just talked about uh, multiples, and uh, I don't think 17, 18 times is the right multiple uh, in this kind of environment where you have um, very little economic growth, and you're paying 17, 18 times peak profit margins. So that's, it, that's it, one of the debates, it, yeah. If you're actually more expensive, if profit margins start to normalize at some point, which I think they are in the midst of, uh, so you're paying an even higher multiple. And if you look at price to sales, you're above where you were at the peak of 2000. So th there are other multiple metrics that we also need to look at in trying to gauge what, what the right valuation is for this market. Yeah, the sustainability of profit margins is definitely a key question, is how much of it is sort of structural and the shift towards tech and that tech He's got what the highest profit margin by far, and she got more foreign earnings, which tends to be lower taxes. Uh, there's all sorts of questions on that price of sales versus PE versus profit margins uh, that you could, that you could drill into. What, what's what's your case for profit margins coming far down? Is it is it a labor supply cost, wages going up, um, input costs, all of the above? Is there one thing that you think is going to force it more than any more than others? It's going to be labor. I mean, you, you can draw a pretty tight relationship between profit margins and labor costs over the last 50 years. And when you think about labor costs as a percent of the profit pie, 2015, we were that was the smallest percentage since World War II. So employees are getting a bigger piece of that pie. And with services making up 85% of the U.S. economy or more, and labor costs making up about two-thirds to up to 70% of one's um, expense side being labor of those service companies, uh, sticky, persistent, higher wage growth is going to lead to higher, um, sorry, lower profit margins if companies aren't able to uh, mitigate that through faster productivity gains, uh, other cost cuts, uh, and or continuing to raise prices. And if we're going to the slower economy, if inflation pressures are moderating outside of labor and they're less able to pass on price increases, then they're going to have to eat the, the, the higher labor costs, and uh, that's going to negatively impact profit margins. 
I want to come back to the Fed for a moment, just because, you know, you you mentioned the Bullard-Waller narrative. They both come from the St. Louis school, so it's not completely surprising, you know, that they're on the same page. But it's really, you don't see anyone dissenting. There's so much you could call groupthink or at least group narrative at the Fed. that They're all singing from the same playbook that we got to raise and keep it high. And then you look back like 12 months ago, Siegel was talking about our show last week, last Last 12 months ago, the, the most aggressive person thought you'd get a 150 basis point hike. Um, and obviously, you know, so how do you trust anything they're saying? Like, and, and do you think that they are, do you think that the, that they are, that the, that they can raise and hold the line? It sounds like your inflation view that they, you, you think they should probably. Well, you're right. How you asked the right question. How can you trust the same people that presided over the easy money that led to, the inflation that we're in now, uh, or other bubbles and busts that we um, that we've seen previously. So yeah, these people aren't trustworthy at all. Uh, I'm just really shortening my time horizon with them in terms of focusing what they're going to do for the next meeting. When they say, "Oh, we want to get to four uh, percent," I don't pay attention to their far out forecasts. I'm focused on what are they hinting at for the next meeting, and we don't even need to listen to them. We we had Nick Chemeros. Uh, right in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, front page, that the Fed's going to hike 75 basis points. And he's the Fed whisperer. So all we needed to hear was his opinion because he was likely fed that opinion by Fed members. Um, but we are getting, as you said, no pushback. So they are, are likely to do that. But whether they raise 50 or 75, they are getting, they, they are taking the Fed funds rate above the previous peak of the Fed funds rate for only the second time over 40-year time frame. So if you think that a two-and-a-quarter, two-and-a-half percent Fed funds rate broke the markets in the fourth quarter of 2018, well, they're about to take uh, the Fed funds rate north of that by 50 or 75. But even if it's 75, that'll be the, that'll be the last 75 basis point hike we get. Yep. So they're going to slow the pace down to 25 or 50, even if they, they get there. Uh, but we're getting into dangerous territory in terms of the negative economic impact of a very aggressive, sharp pace of interest rate increases. At the same time, the balance sheet runoff has now maxed out. So there's this double barrel tightening that is going on, which was also a characteristic of the tightening in the fourth quarter of 2018 that resulted in a, in a freeze-up of markets. We're talking with Peter Bookvar. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group, editor of the book report, a daily macro note. Get multiple notes a day from, from Peter. Peter, it's been a long time since you've actually had sort of you, you could get real yield at the short end of the curve. Um, and even now, the 10-year tips, you're getting real yield out to the 10-year uh, year level. It's no longer negative. You know, at the beginning of the year, we had negative tips yield. You're giving the government money after inflation for 10 years. Now you're getting positive numbers. What do you, what, but you are in an inverted curve. What, what, what are you guys thinking about in the fixed income markets? How are you managing portfolios? What, 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 do you, what are you suggesting to clients there? I, to me, the, the, the two-year yield is, is very attractive. Uh, so because I don't believe the Fed's going to be able to take the Fed funds rate much above three and a half, uh, I, I think getting three and a half in the two-year is, is pretty attractive. Uh, now, when you, when you talked about do we trust the Fed, one of the other things the Fed is saying is not only are they going to raise, but they're going to keep it there. They're not going to quickly have knees buckle and start pivoting and start cutting rates which is what the Fed typically does. They raise interest rates, they put us into recession, and they soon after are cutting interest rates. The Fed has told us they're not. Well, that's one thing that I don't necessarily trust them on. So I think when push comes to shove, if the unemployment rate starts gapping higher, I think that's what the Fed will then shift their focus on, and they'll start to ease again. So I find the two-year yield at 3.5% pretty attractive based on that. Now, we've been short duration going into this. Now, granted, we were short duration when long-end bonds are rallying, so hasn't been the best call when looking at over a longer-term time frame. But at least over the last two years, being uh, short duration has, has certainly mitigated some of the pain, but hasn't immunized it from it because short rates are up so much. So you're even losing money on short-term bonds. But for fresh money and being able to reinvest maturing coupons, 
the short end of the yield curve, like you said, is finally giving us interest rates that we were so desperate for pre-COVID, or I should say post-COVID up yeah. until this year. And, and anything in is is high yield. I mean, the, the spreads there were so low; they've blown out a bit. Um, is is are they getting to be levels that you can say they're getting to four and a half to five percent in some of the high yield bond indexes? Is that attractive yet, or now the Fed's going to crash the economy, so we got to be worried about further deterioration in, in credit? What do you think about the the yield opportunities there? Well, I, I expect further deterioration, but with high yields. Uh, you know, energy, for example, there are a bunch of energy stocks that are high yield. Well, they're doing very well. So I think we just have to be uh, more discriminating within the high yield universe. You know, as I said earlier, uh, I'm mostly concerned about the leverage loan market uh, because of the susceptibility of these companies to a sharp rise in interest rates in a very short period of time. Now, granted, some companies hedge it out via swaps. So they're, they're not totally exposed. But I don't think a lot of companies entered 2022 uh, that had floating rate debt uh, were budgeting for a, a, a rapid rise. And at the same time, the economy is slowing and their cash flows are getting crimped. So to me, that's where I, I am most focused on right now. Now, if you look back, interestingly enough, the great financial crisis, the leveraged loan market sort of skated through okay uh, because a lot of these – a lot of this paper were senior secured, and uh, th- there was a cushion of, of pain below where the senior guys were able to get paid back. This time around, because of such easy credit terms uh, for the last bunch of years, there, there's not as much cushion below, so the recovery rates are going to be less. So that, that, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm most concerned about. And think about when the Fed started raising interest rates, all the money that went into the leverage loan market, everyone thinking, oh, you know, th- that'll be an inflation hedge. I'll, I'll get more interest uh, coupon uh, and interest income with the rise in interest rates without really focusing on, well, you're delving into the lower quality of credit that now is going to be most vulnerable. Yeah, we're talking a lot about floating rate treasuries, which is something that people not even people knew existed. It came out in 2014. It's definitely one of the places that is, I think, better for that. For that, that people wanted the floating rates versus uh, those levered loans. Uh, I want to talk investment grade because there are other investment grades. The universe is smaller, but there are other investment grade floating rate that also is attracted to relative to the the junkier parts of floating rate. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. In in the I, the central bank narrative, it's not only the Fed, and we had the ECB uh, come out this week. What Maybe talk a little bit about what you see globally, uh, what you saw from the ECB going 75, any reaction to that, how you see their dynamic. Um, they, they were forecasting no recession. Uh, a lot of people are calling them out on that. What's, what's your sense of, of what's going on in Europe? Well, up until the Bank of England that is now forecasting a recession over five quarters, no central bank ever says, oh, I think we're going to have a recession. Interestingly enough, the, the rate increase by the ECB has taken their deposit rate above zero for the first time since 2012. What? They've had 10 years of zero to negative interest rates. And it's no wonder that the European bank stock index is down 75% plus from its high of 2007 is because They've killed off the banks. Uh, so they sort of telegraphed that they were going to hike 75. So they sort of did what the market anticipated. But another central bank that waited way too long that is now tightening aggressively into a downturn. And you know, that's going to be difficult uh, to, to, to handle. You know, I will say, you know, getting back to the banks, it is one of the bright spots that the banks now have some oxygen. You know, I, I refer to an upwardly sloping yield curve and positive nominal rates, let alone putting aside real nominal, is, is oxygen to a bank. It gives them a margin at which they can lend, uh, as opposed to negative interest rate policy, which I consider poison for a financial system. And it's important here because about 80 percent of loans are through banks in Europe, as opposed to a large percentage in the U.S. that's dependent on the capital markets. So if you can give the European banks some, some a lifeline, uh, maybe that helps to mitigate 
an economic decline. On the flip side, obviously they're in a recession, and that recession will last at least through the winter because of the spike in energy prices. Uh, and, and we'll see how the bank's loan books manage through that because households, while there's going to be plenty of subsidies and price caps, uh, there's still going to be pain involved, uh, both for households and businesses. Seemingly, every day this week, there was another European smelter that was closing or, sh- or, or limiting capacity because they, they couldn't make money at the current levels of natural gas and power prices. Yeah, I mean, I, and I so I look at you say our, our our valuations low enough in some of these markets to say they're sort of attractive value opportunities, and I look at sort of like European valuations, and you know, even you could get some single digit numbers like a nine PE, ten PE for a European small cap baskets, but I could get that in the U.S. So I could get a nine to ten PE on like fundamental weighted baskets in the U.S., and you don't need to go to Europe to get a nine to ten PE. And 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 that may not be for you know for sure it's not factoring in all the the sort of higher costs that that they're they're getting. What, do do you think the financials are um, you know becoming more investable now that they don't have the negative rates? Is that something you think becomes attractive, um, or is it just so much uncertainty with all that's going on in Europe that uh, you got to stay away? Well, there, there's so much negative sentiment towards Europe that that, that any contrarian just by that basis, has to take a look at it. Uh, not to be a tr- contrarian just for the sake of it, but um, you know, they, they're, they're going through, obviously, a, a rough time, to, to state the obvious. And basically what you're asking is, is are the valuations price, pricing that in? Yep. And you know, the, the banks, I, you know, I mentioned the positive. The negative, of course, is a lot of the bonds that are selling off in Europe, a lot of the banks own those. Now, they'll probably hold it to maturity so they won't lose, but... That'll be a weight on their 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 income, and also having to deal with with uh, you know challenges on their loan book. So it's not an easy ride from here for European banks. But I, I think having positive nominal interest rates uh, is the lifeline that they've needed. And many of these banks are trading well below book value, depending on if you believe book value or not. That that there's a lot of value there. So I, I would look at that and. While we can say, okay, all Europe needs to do is get through this winter and everything will be fine, you know, that's not necessarily the case because it depends on where Putin takes us next year. But um, I, I'm, not, I'm not as uh, – I'm bearish on the, fund, on, on, the, on the economic story right now for Europe. But as you said, these European stock markets have done nothing since the peak of 2007. I mean, I think the Italian stock market – and I haven't checked recently, but I, last time I did it was about – it was down about half of the peak of 07. The Greek stock market, and we're long it, by the way, because of, of for political reasons, uh, we, we like the, the, the uh, Kyrios Mitsutakis. The Athens stock market's down 85% from its 2007 peak. It's hard to hate something that's down 85%. Yeah. So I, I think there, there, there's real value in Europe. It's just a question of, of, of when it gets realized. And you could have said five years ago there was value in Europe, and you're still dealing with sort of that value trap. Um, yeah, it's very, very interesting. The um, Maybe one more question on this topic, and then we'll take a quick break. The We talked Fed and ECB, and, I, and certainly one of the, the offshoots of that becomes – Currency, the exchange rate, the headlines are today. Maybe this is one of the reasons why the market's popping. Dollar strength eases today, but you've had a very weak euro. Um, what you know, and, I, and I, I'm starting to see more divergence. I mean, I, I saw yesterday somebody, one of the strategies we've had on behind the markets talk about 115 is back in the cards. He thinks it's way undervalued. And I had Robin Brooks, who's the the chief economist at IIF, on recently, and he says 90 cents that people are not going low enough, and he is strongly suggesting weak euro. Uh, do you have a, a horse in the race? Where, where, where's your, your, your view on the euro? So I, I, I think I'll start by saying that, talking about the dollar generally. I believe that the large predominant factor for the dollar outperformance has been only interest rate differentials, and only because we've had such an aggressive Fed relative to these other central banks. And that has offset um, the, 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 the dollar negatives of uh, exploding debts and deficits and so on. Um, 
And if you think that the Fed is close to both slowing down the rate of interest rate increases and maybe getting closer to the end of them, at the same time, the ECB is now stepping up. Uh, the Bank of Canada has gotten aggressive. The Bank of England meets, uh, I think, next week, and we'll see whether they step up, but they're all raising, that, that that interest rate differential gap is beginning to close. And that sort of dollar edge is going to lose some of its edge. And with the euro, interestingly, when you think about where it got at the depths of the concerns of 2012, when people thought that the euro was just going to splinter, that led to Draghi saying, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure it doesn't happen. When you had the, the, the yield blowouts in, in, in Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy, the euro didn't break below 105. So now no one's talking about the threat of, of the euro splintering. All we're talking about right now is the ECB that's way behind the curve and energy prices are hot. So if I can, would compare the two, I would say I don't see much downside left in the euro based on that. Because I would think breaking up the European Union was probably more of a risk to the euro than, than what I just said now. But now if you have the ECB that's going to get aggressive, then I don't see much downside risk anymore to the, uh, to the euro. And one last thing on the dollar. The dollar has mostly been trading strong against the euro, the pound, and the yen particularly against the yen recently, because yeah. look at the DOJ. I mean, they're, they're still doing yield curve control, and they're still committed to it. And no, no wonder why the yen is weak. And the U.K., of course, dealing with uh, the spending blowout and high inflation, that's going to be in the mid-teens, possibly as high teens, uh, because of the, the raise in the energy cap relative to a very low uh, bank rate there. But if you look at the dollar against the Mexican peso, and the Canadian dollar, two of our largest trading partners, you know, they, they, they're, they've been trading in range. Uh, you look at the dollar against the Brazilian real, you know, it's done nothing over the last couple of years because the Brazilian central bank has been aggressive in raising interest rates. And it's also a commodity currency that's benefited in addition to the peso and the Canadian dollar. So I think it's important to separate out the dollar's performance amongst these different currencies and really to understand, you know, putting aside the Turkish lira, for example, that most of the strength has been against the euro, pound, and yen. Yeah, and that, that those are very much a reflection of those central banks raising rates, you would think, uh, way before the Fed. And even there, you get some very nice carry when you buy a lot of those currencies today, even with the, the Fed hiking rates. We have um, Peter Bookfar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group, the editor of The Book Report, a great macro market newsletter. We have Peter for the hour. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, uh, Peter, um, you know, we started off the discussion with Professor Siegel talking about valuations. You were talking about profit margins. Uh, and, you know, you were just mentioning to me that th there's been some re-rating across stocks, but that you, you think there could be even more to go. Do you want to talk about where in the markets do you think there's some valuation opportunities, challenges, what's, what's happening across the markets? So, yeah, so, so we know really beginning last year and into this year, uh, a, a large reason for the market sell-off was the multiple re-rate. The S&P went from 22 times to now about 17, 18 times. That's with actually very little change in earnings estimates. And I, I think the question for the, the broader market, now there are plenty of stocks out there that are down 50, 75% off their highs that maybe, maybe they've seen the worst. Uh, but understanding that markets don't, all stocks don't top out at the same time. They don't all bottom at the same time. And, my point is that I think that when you look at some of the mega cap stocks that have really driven the bus of the bull market, and we all know the names I'm talking about, that are still trading at high multiples, is can they sustain those multiples? Uh, Apple, Microsoft trading at high 20s multiples, 25, 26, 27 times earnings. Tesla still trading at a very rich multiple. Amazon still trading at a very rich multiples. Can those multiples be sustained? Great companies, we know, but um, can they be sustained? And I, and I think that that will be sort of the determining factor of whether, you know, is the S&P going to bottom at, at 3,000 or 3,400 where it was pre-COVID? 
or we've seen the worst and, and they're not going to re-raid and, and, and it's up from here. Uh, and I think that's going to be a big question. Now, also, those companies are not immune to the economic cycle. Uh, this, this global slowdown they're very susceptible to. I mean, a quarter of, of Apple's business is in Europe. If you're having difficulty paying your heating bill, uh, I'm not sure if you're running to upgrade to the Apple 14. So I think that those are the things that we have to to look at here and uh, also trying to figure out sort of the next stage of, of, of the spare market. Do you, do you think they're going to have the same cost pressures from the labor side is that is, is do, you th- do you see tech being more insulated less insulated from the labor supplies well they, they they most of them have higher profit margins so they'll, they'll be able to absorb it but when you look at when you look at the labor market where are all the labor announcements coming from the firings and the limited hiring it's all coming out of tech yeah they're all tightening their, their belt buckles you haven't heard it really most in other places. So uh, they're obviously feeling some, some, some economic heat here that's resulting in them, again, limiting hiring or, or actually cutting staff. I mean, with SNAP, uh, was it earlier this week or last week, said they're cutting 20% of their, of their labor force. 20%, that's, that, that's a notable amount to right-size their, their cost structure in a lower revenue growth world. Yeah, absolutely. But that's also where a lot of the overhiring took place. All the investment money piled into tech, whether it's publicly traded tech or VC tech or IPO tech, that's where all the money went. And there was a lot of competition for employees and a lot of overhiring. And uh, now we're seeing a reversal of that. Now, a lot of these are talented people. So luckily, they're quickly finding new jobs. But um, this is where a lot of the labor market adjustments, at least as of now, have taken place. Well, you mentioned in, in some of your macro portfolios liking Greece as one of those sort of valuation things. Are there places of the U.S. market that you're finding interesting valuations? Uh, it sounds like tech is one you'd be worried about. So I, I think the, the value side of the market already has low expectations as they're defined as value. You know, growth, ex, growth is growth. Yeah, they have a, a faster growth rate, but it also implies higher valuations and higher expectations. Now, of course, in buying value, you don't want to get trapped in a value uh, stock that it has deteriorating fundamentals. So you have to do a good job of, of, of uh, differentiating a, a challenged business model and one that's just temporarily out of favor. Uh, obviously, I, I do my best to try to find those that are temporarily out of favor and therefore that valuation being low will re-rate higher. Uh, and in a rising rate environment, a slowing growth environment, growth uh, re-rates. And growth rates go from 30% plus down to 20, down to 15, just by the law of large numbers. And as part of that, uh, a growth stock alone can become a value stock as people re-rate that multiple. Uh, so there are definitely cheap stocks out there, but you have to have a time horizon. You can't buy a cheap stock and say, I'm going to hold it for six months because cheap can get cheaper. You know, the key in getting through a bear market are two things, losing less and having a time horizon. And actually a third is having the ability to deploy cash because bear markets are the best time to be buying stocks because that's when attractive valuations present themselves. That's when discounts are presented are in uh, bear markets. You know, as opposed to being in a bull market and people that are buying things having to pay up and up and up uh, in order to participate. It feels good in the short term because that usually works in the short term. But looking out over a five to ten year time frame, um, buying low usually presents the best opportunity for long term uh, returns. Um, you know, one of the topics, if we if we go a little bit away from just uh, core stocks, we, we talked a lot about the dollar. We talked about rates at the start of the show. You and I have, have spent some time talking about gold. I think the last time on, on Behind the Markets we came on, we talked about gold and, and, and where you see going over time. Give us an update on gold, the dollar, rates, what's moving it this year. If you have a long-term outlook, how you think about positioning gold in portfolios, uh, give us your latest. So, so gold in 2021 – and I'll differentiate the action in 2021 from 2020 where gold and silver were up 
sharply in response to the, the sharp drop in interest rates and all the QE. 2021 was a major disappointment where at least I, I felt like I got my inflation story right, but gold and silver were, were no help. And that was because of the belief that either inflation was transitory, which it was proven not to be, and those people were wrong. Uh, but then if it was not, well, the Fed's going to come to the rescue and they're going to camp down on inflation, which they did not in 2021, but people were beginning to anticipate what they would do in 2022. Now, in 2022, gold's only down about 5 6%. So when you compare that asset compared to many other things, it's traded really well. But there's still a lot of disappointment when you look at it over a, a few-year time frame, thinking, well, 40-year highs in inflation, and at least for the last couple of years, gold can't get out of its own way. And But I think that is really due to this very slow but now aggressive uh, approach by the Fed in raising interest rates and the resultant increase in the dollar uh, that has come with that. And that's been the headwind. So the question now is what happens from here? If you believe, as I said earlier, that the Fed, whether they raise 50 or 75, is probably coming to the closer end of their aggressive rate hike cycle, uh, then you, you take away uh, a leg of that stool of, of, of for the, the gold bears. Uh, so I do believe that we're getting close to uh, the worst being over for gold and silver. Now, silver is interesting because half the demand for silver is industrial. So that sort of vacillates between trading with copper and people worried about economic growth, and then some days trading as a monetary metal trading like gold. It usually trades more like gold. But even as a monetary, even I'm sorry, even as an industrial metal, we have to understand that gold is going to be a very important part of this new renewable economy that everyone has been wanting to shift to, unfortunately, more aggressively than they should have. Uh, and we're seeing that now with high energy prices. But uh, China is building solar planet panels left and right. And there's a lot of and there's silver that goes into every one of those uh, EVs. There's silver that goes into those. So there is an attractive end market demand for silver that I think is going to complement uh, the, the, the benefit it will uh, reap in um, when the Fed stops raising interest rates or at least slows down the pace of its tightening. Very interesting. Because we're still in an inflationary world, even though it is going to be a slower inflationary world than the 9% that we saw uh, a few months ago. We're talking with Peter Bookfar, Chief Investment Officer, Bleakley Financial Group, editor of the Book Report. It, a lot of people are have been poking fun of like, hey, we have the highest inflation and gold has not done it. So it's interesting uh, to get the comments. I, and I do I do think a lot of it is it, you know, gold in euros and gold in yen is very different than gold in dollars uh, in, in many ways. So I think that your, your, your point resonates well on that. Um, in terms of... Other parts of the world, uh, I know that you and I have talked a little bit about Asia and, and sort of the long-term growth of Asia. China has come under enormous pressure, uh, all sorts of uncertainty over what is their COVID lockdown policy, what is the longer-term outlook. They've taken a, a battering to their tech stocks. Um, give us your view on sort of long-term Asia and, and how, how China fits into the story. So we, we all know the bear case right now with China and that being the COVID approach and the distress, distress in their residential real estate market. Longer term, of course, we can have a discussion on the size of their labor force and the working age population and so on. But at least right now, that, that, that's the, 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 the difficulty that China's having. But my bull case on Asia is more than just China, but includes China. It, it is the growing wealth of the middle class, particularly in China, where the size of the middle class is going to double in the next five years. It is a growing middle class in India. It is a growing middle class in Vietnam, in Indonesia. So you take those countries population-wise, and that's about half of, of the world's population is just just that region. That's actually, if you add up the entire region, it's about four and a half billion of the eight um, so, but I, I think that, that that's growing them. The growing middle class, to me, is the most exciting growth driver over the next 10 plus years. Europe, at best, will grow 1%. U.S. growth, because of slowing population growth and the size of the labor force, 
is maybe going to grow one and a half percent tops. Maybe we'll get a couple of a quarter here and there, two to two and a half. Uh, to me, it's, it's Asia that's exciting. And we talked about how European markets have lagged so badly over the last 10 plus years and are inexpensive. Asian markets, too. I mean, look, look at the, I mean, the, the, the Nikkei is at close to 20,000. It was 39,000 in 1989. The Japanese bank stock index is down 85% in nominal terms from where it was in 1989, thanks to the policies of the Bank of Japan. So th- there's a lot of value to be had in Asia with what I believe is an exciting growth story when looking out five to 10 years. Now, again, I don't know what's going to happen next six months, 12 months for China. I don't know what's going to happen with China and Taiwan. All I do know is if China and Taiwan gets bad and, and we, have, we, we start sanctioning China, then the whole world is screwed if that happens. Uh, it's not just going to be Asia. Uh, but um, but I, I think there, there, there's opportunities and values to be had in that region of the world. When you think about it, so you mentioned Japan, you mentioned uh, sort of the broader, more emerging Asia. Um, it, it, when you think about that allocation, is, is Japan part of the story? Because it, it's, it's close, it's proximity, it helps it feed uh, the growth in those other regions. It's gonna, the companies are going to benefit because they're located there. Uh, and and is, is that part of the thesis, or do you want to really want to concentrate on the emerging part of Asia for the younger pro, population profiles and, and those consumer growth stories? It's both. Uh, we're bullish on Japan, and we own the Wisdom Tree DXJ. Uh, and luckily, we do because it combined our desire to be long Japan at the same time not wanting to be long the yen. And 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 that's the beauty of the product that you guys have created uh, is to be able to uh, participate in the recovery in the Japanese stocks at the same time not having to get the performance dragged down by the persistent weakness in the yen. I mean, when you think about Japan, like I said, it's been through, it's been 30 years plus of just malaise, but you have some of the best companies in the world there that you have, um, that are trading at really attractive multiples, and that through one of the benefits of Abenomics was a focus on shareholders and paying dividends and buying back stock and reducing all these cross-holdings that were uh, a major characteristic of the bull market in the 80s. And having actually a dividend yield in, in, in the Nikkei that is above the S&P 500. Yeah. Now, some of that, of course, is the higher valuation and the outperformance of the S&P, but at least as of today, you can get a higher dividend yield buying Japanese stocks you know, in the aggregate than you can buying the S&P 500. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Uh, we appreciate uh, the, the shout there. The, the um, yeah, you get nine to ten PEs in some of those stocks in Japan. I mean, th- that's that's another place where you get very reasonable multiples. No, no competition from bond yields in Japan. Um, you know, the, the, I, that's one of the in, in your in your daily macro notes. You you sort of poke at Kuroda that he why does he still have a job? Um, but you know, you, you don't have to rely on the yen. I mean, I think that's a I I, I say that people should be relying on currencies. Generally, uh, but particularly in Japan, is is an interesting one. Um, what do you think Kuroda's endgame is in in terms of you know he comes up for next year is 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 likely when they change his predecessor change policy. Fed will be done hiking. That's that may be the time to go long the end. Well, I I think we're we're reaching some major pressure points here because the yen decline has accelerated. And I think it's, it's that acceleration that, that I think potentially could lead to a shift in policy. There, there, there's one thing when you get a currency move that's gradual over time, that can sort of be digested. But when you get unstable moves of one to two yen a day, up to three, that even catches the attention of, of the Japanese. So the, 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 a couple of days ago, heads of the finance ministry, uh, the financial services agency, and the BOJ convened a meeting over the weakness in the yen. So I, I, I would not be surprised if Kuroda shocks us and decides to widen the band of the old curve control 
at the next meeting or two. And as you said, his tenure is over next year. And while ideally, if it was up to him, he'd sort of ride off with the current policy, the markets aren't letting him. And he's having to come up with more yen printed uh, to buy five and 10 year JDBs to keep that yield curve control intact. In, in and, and it's why I think it's very important that investors keep a close eye on the 40-year GGB. And I say the 40-year because it is the furthest out on the yield curve and thus least manipulated by negative rates on the short end and yield curve control out to 10 years. So that's so if there's any market messaging left in the, in the Japanese bond market, it's that 40-year. Hmm. So keep an eye on it. And it is retesting its, its highs of of uh, June, July. So if that breaks out, it's telling you that the, the pressure is going to further intensify in Kuroda, which I have a feeling he's going to eventually buckle to because inflation in Japan, while it's much lower than the rest of the world, is real now because they are importing with depreciated yen these very high energy prices. And it's why they decided to turn on nine nuclear plants. So I think a combination of them turning on nine nuclear facilities, in addition to Kuroda potentially buckling and widening that band, you could be on the cusp of a, a rather short yen sell-off. I'm sorry, what am I saying? Yen rally um, if Kuroda actually does that. Very interesting. Um, I think this will be our final big topic. Any if, For people who want to stay updated with your views or, or give 30 seconds on who should think about the book report, who should think about Bleakly Advisory? So Bleakly Advisory is a wealth management firm if anybody wants those services and anybody who wants to be kept up to speed on the, the daily macro and market misses, uh, they can subscribe to uh, the book report. Uh, the website's B-O-O-C-K report.com as a, a play on the spelling of my last name. Yep, we've been talking with Peter Bookfar, um, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakly Financial uh, and editor of this book report. Uh, I, I definitely enjoy getting his commentary. You see all of it, whether it's the economic reports, the markets, uh, you're going to get this continuation of this Corota conversation and, and the ECB and the Fed. You get a lot of that on a, on a daily basis. And again, a few times a day. Very nice notes from Peter. Um, uh, so, Peter, thanks for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Jeremy, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, always fun chatting. Yep, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. We got. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our producer, Patty Hall, uh, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.